It has been good to be with you. Tom uh, reminded me of something I have said before and maybe didn't say enough of, and that is shepherding uh, in, involves a flock. When you look at the, at the whole concept of discipleship, uh, the popular method has been one-on-one. But the reality is even Jesus didn't do that. Jesus did one-on-three, one-on-twelve, one-on-seventy-two, whatever, but, but not one-on-one per se. And the reality is when you come to Ephesians chapter 4 and you understand the, the diversity of spiritual gifts, no one person has the capacity to bring enough to the table to, to really uh, supply what's needed. And so a flock is required, I think, and is essential. And, and so that's what the church is about. And that's why we have to be really careful, I think, to keep Hebrews 10 in mind, that we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And we, as members of the flock, need to sort of mentally keep tabs of who isn't there. Uh, because safety is with the flock, not not out on your your own. I think I'll tell you one shepherding story to sort of start out. I want to give you guys a chance later uh, in this meeting to share a, a shepherding story of yours. But it's interesting to me the context in which shepherding can occur. I was at one of the big uh, maximum security prisons in Texas, and uh, we had a seminar going on, and one of the inmates came up to me during a break and said, um, I heard that one of the volunteers here uh, actually served time in this prison. Uh, if that's true, could, could, could that person share their testimony? So I said, well, I'll ask. Sure as shooting, one of the guys had. So I asked him to come up and share his testimony. He was a white dude, and some of the leaders... Uh, in the church on the inside uh, were African-American guys. And generally in prison, the, the racial lines are, are more firmly drawn than perhaps they are on the outside world. So anyway, this guy comes up to the front and he tells his story. He had been a part of a motorcycle gang and uh, I don't know if it was a weak moment or whatever, but he steals a hog, but it's not a uh, a cheap hog. It's a It's a the whole decked out one, so it's grand theft. And so he's he's now looking at big time rather than penny any time. He, uh, he's awaiting uh, being sent up. I think he's already been sentenced. He knows he's going to this maximum security prison, and he is scared to death. He's living in the gang, in a gang house. And somebody said to him, I think you need to read a Bible. And he said, uh, so I got one. He hesitates a minute. And he said, well, I stole one. And he started reading the Gospels about Jesus. And he said, I was weeping so loud, I had to go down into the bathroom and turn on the shower so that people wouldn't hear me cry. And he came to trust in Jesus. So he's still headed for the big prison. And he... Uh, as he's entering into the prison and being checked in, and he stops and he looks back, and, and one of the guys that was kind of a leader in the church, a young African-American guy named Billy, who really played the saxophone well, he stopped and he said, Billy, would you come up here? 
And he broke down and said, Billy took me in. He took me under his wing and he discipled me. And those two men stood there weeping on each other's shoulders. I got to tell you, that was just incredible. But, but my point is, shepherding needs to happen everywhere there are believers. And if they're not believers, <laughs> it still needs to happen because you need to get them to join the flock. Okay, well, I want to talk to you for a minute about uh, especially the, the matter of uh, our relationship in our shepherding to women. One of the things that I've discovered over my years of observation is that many Christian young women get it wrong when it comes to the term spiritual leader. I can think of all kinds of people who wanted to go down and work at the seminary because that was happy hunting grounds for husbands. But what I saw happening was many of them mistook aggressiveness, assertiveness, and sort of type A-ness as, as, uh, as an indication of spiritual leadership. And after they got married, they realized <laughs> that wasn't leadership, that was dictatorship. And, and it wasn't really what, I guess what I'm saying is, they came to see that it wasn't shepherding leadership. It was, it was autocratic, and, and they had to now come to terms with that as gals that were married. Spiritual leaders don't fit into, I think, any given personality type. But I really think that not only women, but but many men, assume that a spiritual leader is a certain kind of personality type. And that is kind of outgoing and, and, and all of that stuff. And I'm here to stomp on that if I can. But I want to give you two guys that make me smile. Ezra, in, in Ezra chapter 9 and verse 3 when he hears about the sin of the people, look what he does. Ezra chapter 9, verse 3. And when I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe, and I pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down appalled. <laughs> He's taking it all out on himself. And the people basically say, hey, come on, man, we, we can deal with this. Now I want you to look at Nehemiah chapter 13. Chapter 13, starting at verse 23. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak in the language of Judah, the language of their own people. So I contended with them, and I cursed them, and I struck some of them. I pulled out their hair, and I made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, so on. Two different leadership styles, right? Pull out your hair, pull out their hair. They were both leaders. And and I think we just have to see that leaders don't have a particular personality uh, type to them. And so you can't look at that as somehow the evidence or the proof of what spiritual leaders really uh, look at. I'm going to give you this observation as an elder uh, observing my fellow elders. Because I believe all of them are leaders, but they're leaders in different ways. And, and so when we have an elders meeting, obviously there are some of us who speak early and maybe too long. But there are others who aren't quick to speak. 
And if we don't stop long enough to say, so-and-so, what are you thinking about this? And if we don't listen to what they're saying, we're going to miss some very key elements because not all leaders are aggressive people. And, and that's, that's not a minus. That may well be a plus. And the other thing I would say, and I, one of my good friends uh, disagrees with me about that, nobody at, at CBC, he uses the term first among equals. I hate that term because I, I believe it, it just isn't true. How, you, you can't be among equals and be first in, in the sense that it's being used. So it's like every group of leaders has a leader of leaders and, and they're first among equals. I don't believe that's true. And I want to tell you that at least my experience with our elders is that the guy who's gifted and knows best what we're talking about is the first among equals. He's the guy that we want to hear. I have to tell you, when Don Grimm was an elder, one of the things I'm not is Mr. Spreadsheet. And and every time a spreadsheet comes, Keith knows it. Every time a spreadsheet comes, I lean over to somebody next to me, uh, and, and now it's Charlie, and, and say, what does this mean? I just don't do spreadsheets. Don was the guy who could look at a resume or a spreadsheet, and in seconds, he could tell you the essence of what it was about. And so the, the issue is, when it comes to something, if it's in the realm of finance, or it's in the realm maybe of mercy, or whatever the particular need is, the elder who is in that area, it's that his giftedness and his expertise, then he's the guy that all of us tend to listen to and give a higher, as it were, priority to what he brings to the table because of that. Now, I want to talk about shepherding women. I think the scripture is really clear to young men about their conduct uh, when it comes to young women. And one of the texts that you would see is 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 2. And there, Paul is telling Timothy that he needs to relate to young women as sisters. Now, I had an older sister, and that's one story. That was always competition. Uh, and, and the war stories go on. My sister thought she, because she was a year older, could tell me what to do. So we had a water fight. She gets a glass. I bring the hose in the house. I am not going to be bested by that. I didn't ever feel the necessity to protect my older sister. <laughs> my younger sister, that was another story. Don't mess with her. She's, I'm, I'm looking out for her. That's just the way it was. And, and I think that's what Paul is saying. You, as young men, should be dealing with young ladies as your sister. And you ought to be protecting. You ought to be preserving them. Uh, I, I can identify with that now as a father. When my kids were young, my girls were young and they were getting to dating age, somebody said to me, what are you going to do when your girls get to dating age? And I says, buying a shotgun. said, well, what are you going to do when this daughter gets to dating age? And I said, easy, I'm moving from a pump to an automatic. <laughs> it, but it's that protective instinct. That's what young men ought to feel toward young ladies. Another text you remember is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I think this is a really critical text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, you abstain from sexual immorality. 
that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all of these things, just as we also told you uh, before and solemnly warned you. I had an email one time from what I assumed was a young lady, and that was correct. And she said, I didn't get saved until later after college. And and my lifestyle was not pure before that. And now I'm married to a Christian husband, and I don't know where the boundaries are. Which is really a sad thing. And one of the texts I took her to first was this text. If you're a Christian, sanctification has a direct impact on your sex life. Is that not true? Remember Ephesians 4 is saying, when you come to faith, everything turns upside down. Before you're saved, it's all about me. And, and, and so being a shepherd, in a sense, and having an other's focus impacts the way one relates, uh, not only to young women in general, but to your wife in particular. It has real implications. I have to tell you, in this instance with this lady, I was really walking on eggs because I did not want to go into territory that was unsafe. Finally, she writes back to me and said, okay, I might as well tell you. My husband is a seminary student, and he is looking at everything you say over my shoulder (laughs) with the greatest of interest. (laughs) thought, okay, I feel better. But there is, in the area of our relationship with young ladies, there is a real need. Notice all this Me Too stuff. I just, just the other day, heard another a story. Only in this case, it was a young lady who wrote a Me Too about her youth pastor. And, and that's just going to have all kinds of wreckage in the midst. The way in which we relate to other women is just hugely, hugely important. All right, husbands and wives. First Peter chapter... 3 and verse 7, I think, is relevant here. We read this verse earlier, last night, I think. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. So you've got these two elements. On the one hand, she is your equal in Christ. That's her identity. On the other hand, she's she's identified as a weaker vessel. Does that not, in your shepherding impulses, does that not say to you, I need to minister out of strength to that weakness? That's what troubles me when you read about Abraham and Isaac passing their wives off as as their sisters. Because what they're saying to them is, you make the sacrifice to protect me when the opposite is really the the case, the way it ought to be. Uh, This whole area, by the way, I think is an area that's potentially abusive. There are two ways in which uh, men can mess up on leadership. One is, is sort of sheepish leadership, and that is where you don't lead. But the other area is, is sort of lording over your wife. And, and holding those texts over her head as though that's the way she just needs to suck it up and, and, and go on. And that's, that's not it either. 
there's a shepherding role that I think ought to take place in the husband-wife relationship. By the way, Cliff had some words about, where's Clifford? Come on, raise your hand. There, I see it. Do you want to add to that at all, Cliff? Feel free. I, I know that's an area you feel strongly about. <laughs> all right. I, d- I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I, I didn't want to stifle you if you had something to say either. Um, here's, some, here's some words of advice about men and women, and this can apply to women in general. It can apply to wives in particular. Sometimes we need to listen to the advice women have to give, even women who aren't our wives, or the counsel they have to give, or the rebuke they have to give. Sometimes women are telling us things we desperately need to hear. And I think in this whole area, uh, when you look at Matthew chapter 18, for example, and you see a brother overtaken in a fault, that needs to be very carefully handled, but Some people take family and somehow pull that piece out of Matthew 18 and sort of say, this is a family matter, which basically means don't tell anybody about it. But Matthew 18 says, if it's one that's going to destroy a person's life and it's sin, then it needs to be addressed. And if it isn't corrected on a one-on-one, then it's got to go to a higher level. It's got to go to a more public level. So the story is Abigail, right? 1 Samuel 25, David's a young stud, and, and he's, he's been hanging out uh, away from Saul. He's hanging out, and he's right in the territory where Nabal has all of his flocks. Nabal's a rich man, but Nabal is a fool. Everybody knows it, his wife and his employees. And so uh, David has been has been there. He's been protecting the shepherds and their flocks. He hasn't, he hasn't taken anything for himself. Um, He's just been a good neighbor. And so festival time comes along and David sends a messenger to Nabal and said, it's festival time. This would be an appropriate time for you to to give a gift of appreciation. And uh, you remember Nabal, the irony is, he says, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? And, And, you know, there's all kinds of people who were rebelling against their leaders. He knows absolutely about David. He knows his name. He knows his father's name. He knows he is a fugitive from Saul. And what he's saying is, I'm not taking his side. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be a part of that. And I'm, most of all, I'm not gonna get rid of my stuff to give to him. So the, David's messengers go back. <laughs> David's hot-headed. He straps on his, his sword and says to the guys, saddle up. And we're going to wipe out every male member of the household, which incidentally would have been the solution to all of Abigail's problems. Right. He wouldn't need to kill any women. <laughs> Just take the men. But Abigail takes she goes to the pantry. And this is what's funny. I think she takes all the things that that Nabal had stored up for his celebration. She takes those loads them on the donkeys, goes down and meets David. And, and she says to David, all of the, 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 the foolishness, all of the things that you want to take out on my husband, take out on me. Let, let me be the one who, who if you're going to outpour your, your anger and whatever, let it be on me. But I would say to you, you are going to be the king of Israel. And when you become king, having innocent blood on your hands is just not going to be a good thing for you to do. 
Now, here's Abigail's problem. She's got a twofold issue of submission. She has an issue of submission to her husband. She has an issue of submission to her king. And when she proceeds as she does, my take is she is being submissive to both. Now, I'm just going to tell you this because I would tell your wives the same thing. Submission is not doing everything that the one to whom you're in submission tells you to do. Submission is not doing everything you're told. You know, doing everything your husband says is not necessarily the thing that you would do. What Abigail does is she is submissive in the, in the Philippians two sense. And that is she puts the interest of her husband and the interests of her king to be above her own interest. And what she's saying is, if you're going to harm somebody, harm me. So she's willing to sacrifice herself so that she will save the life of her husband. That's submission. Putting other people's interest above your own, even if it means putting yourself at risk, putting yourself in a place where you have to make the sacrifice. So there's a case, the point being, she's not yet David's wife. David recognizes the wisdom of what she says and goes away, a wiser man without killing anybody. And God takes out Nabal. And when he does, David sends his messenger and gets a wife. Now, that's kind of an interesting twist of things, but my point is submission is not just blind obedience. It is acting thoughtfully in a way that really conforms to God's word and seeks the best interest of another. And so if David is willing to listen to the advice of a woman who is not even his wife at that moment, and in effect the correction that she offers in a humble way, husbands, we, we, our wives sometimes really are dead on, and we need to, we need to hear it. Uh, that's hard for me. And, I, and again, part of it is for me, as I'm a logic guy, the first year of our marriage, my, my constant thing was, but that's not the point. <laughs> I had this neat string of logic. A, B, C, and my brilliant conclusion. And Jeanette was going around this way, and she had another, another outcome. It's possible that sometimes that's the right one. And we need to give that due, I think, due thought. We need to, as husbands, affirm and support our wives. Now, I'm taking you to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 is, is Wonder Woman. Somebody once said that men grow up thinking the ideal wife is a mixture of Betty Crocker, Betty, Betty Grable, for those of you who remember that far back, and I don't know who else, but Mother Teresa, you know. And, and so you've got this, this wonder of, of a person but the reality is, what woman, what woman can possibly live up to all of those things in Proverbs 31? She can't. But when you create an ideal woman, what you are saying is, here's the bandwidth. Here's the bandwidth of activity in which that wife can operate. And she's given the freedom to do these, to buy and all of the things that she does. And my point to you is, why can she do that? She can do that because her husband affirms and supports her in doing that. 
And the end result is because of this magnificent woman and her standing in the community, it raises her husband's position at the gate. And he has greater influence. So I'm saying our wives can't do everything we can do. But our wives can do many things. And oftentimes they do many things better than we do. And the way in which we serve as shepherds to our wives is to facilitate their strengths and their ministry opportunities so that they can, in a sense, reach full, full bloom. Here's another piece of advice for what it's worth. Men are not assigned leadership because they are smarter or because they are more spiritual than women. Men are assigned to lead. That's right. God gives us the responsibility to be leaders, shepherd leaders in our homes. Doesn't mean we're always smarter. I, I, I've thought through the years of, of couples I've dealt with and how often I wanted to say to the husband, I wish you could follow your wife. That she really had more sense. But God has established a line of authority. But it's not saying we're better, we're smarter than, than they are, and certainly not that we're more spiritual. You know, I look through the, the New Testament, and, and I am appalled at how dense the apostles are. They are, they are deadheads, are they not? Here Jesus sits at the Last Supper with them. And he says that over and over, he says to them, we're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to die and rise on the third day. Disciples are back there arguing about who gets first chair in heaven. They didn't even hear him say it. And here's a woman anointing Jesus' feet. And Jesus says, she's preparing me for burial. They got it. Here's the Canaanite woman called Syrophoenician as well. Canaanite woman, she hasn't she gone to seminary. She hasn't been, who knows what she knew. But what she knew about Jesus was, look, you have got so much abundance at your table. I am happy to be the dog underneath getting the crumbs. Disciples didn't get it in that text. Jesus fed the 5,000. And then he walked on the water and they couldn't see a connection between that and the Exodus in the, in the, in the Old Testament. Jesus gets to the 4,000 and never make the connection between the five and the four. And they act like they've never seen it before in their life. And then Jesus says, look out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And they're in the boat and all they can think of is leaven, bread, lunch. And they're saying, who brought lunch? And Jesus is saying to him, we had 12 baskets left over here, seven baskets. You're worried about lunch? I'm in the boat. Here's the Canaanite woman. She gets it. Disciples don't. I mean, that is consistent. Who is the first ones to recognize and believe the resurrection of Jesus? Women. The disciples thought she was nuts. They're saying to each other, you know, they just can't get it. And I'll tell you why. They are so intent upon their position in the kingdom and what they gain from Jesus' leadership that they can't let Jesus talk about anything that doesn't look that way. 
So when Jesus says to the disciples after the great confession, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die, Peter, I think, whacks Jesus on the shoulder and said, I don't want to hear any more of that. Because if Jesus is going to die, what's that going to do to us? They're so intent upon their self-gain, they can't get it. Women did. So I want to tell you, it is not because we are more spiritual than, than they. Here's an interesting one. Paul says the most vital organs in the body are the unseen organs. So, you know, here you have this whole thing about spiritual gifts. Interestingly, in Corinth, prophecy was looked down on. Tongues was the thing to have. That was the gift. Because it was, it was out in the open, it was visible, and, and, and whatever, and it just looked cool. So what Paul says is, you need to understand that when you, you do, the, we were at my, my, uh, one of my daughter's house, and my granddaughter is painting Jeanette's toenails. Now, do you paint the toenails because they are the most vital organ in your body? You don't. You paint the toenails because they ain't nothing at all. So you try to make something of it. That's what Paul says. Tongues is like a compensation. It's a runner-up gift. And it's, it's not that it's, it's not a gift, but it's not the most important. And God gives it this kind of extra uh, toenail job so that you can feel better about it. But he said, the vital organs are unseen. You don't see what they do. You don't say, take my heart out, take a look, see how it pumps. But it's what keeps you going. You can lose fingers. You can lose eyes, ears. You can't lose those vital organs. Those are the ones, Paul says, that are so essential to the, uh, to the function of the body. And what I'm saying is, in many cases, women may be the unseen organ. But don't kid yourself about what's most vital. I may have told some of you the story before, but I was at a lunch. And one of the well-known Christian leaders was there and uh he was he was telling his experience about his mother-in-law passing away and nobody really knew that his mother-in-law was was a woman of prayer and as they were cleaning out her house they found her prayer journals and it didn't realize they even existed and so what he had done is he'd taken pages out of the prayer journal that would relate to each of the children of this of this woman and he framed it for them so that they could see, in effect, they were in her prayers. And he said this to us. Every major success in my ministry was in her prayer journal. Every single one. You know what that says to me? When we get to heaven and the rewards are getting passed out, don't plan on being at the front of the line. Many of us who have seen any measure of success are going to say, I know my wife was praying. Unseen, she was praying. I know Jeanette's praying right now. These are vital, vital things. Do not ever underestimate the value of your wife and of her ministry. And as a shepherd, do everything you can to encourage it. Okay, let me just talk for a minute about essential elements of the shepherding leadership. Seems to me Matthew chapter 20 has to be one of those. Matthew chapter 20. <laughs> Remember, they even conned uh, 
James and John even conned their mother into uh, getting part of this action. But basically it was, when you get to their kingdom, my, may my son sit at your right hand and your left. That was really what the disciples were all squawking about one way or the other. But Jesus says to them, because the other disciples obviously were hacked off, that these two would look for first place. Jesus says to them, he called them to himself, verse 25, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's a world of difference between the secular view of leadership and the spiritual view of leadership. The spiritual view of leadership is the benefit of others. The spiritual view of leadership is service to others. And the spiritual view of leadership means there's probably going to be sacrifice on your part to bring that to pass. It's a whole different venue. Now, if you carry that into Philippians chapter 2, you find some interesting things. We know that text well. Consider others more important to yourself and then where it takes us to the mind of Christ and whatever and how he submits to the will of the Father. But if you notice how that starts, it's all about unity. It's all about unity. Wherever there is competition, there is strife. Competition leads to strife. And, and the, in a sense, that's the kind of American way of life, is to create competition. But that is not the way it is to work within the church. It's to be complementary. We are to be serving and assisting and facilitating others, not competing with them. Competition leads to strife. Humility leads to sacrificial service. And that leads to growth. It leads to benefit for others. And ultimately, Paul says, it leads to the uh, glory of our Lord Jesus. So, seems to me when you talk about shepherd leadership, it all boils down to this. Shepherd leadership is attentiveness to the needs of others. Looking for those areas of vulnerability or need that either we can meet or we can facilitate it being met for their good and the glory of God. It's just a whole way of looking at life. My dad had a friend in college. He happened to own 20 acres of Orange Grove on which they built the sports stadium around the Los Angeles area, interestingly enough, Orange County. And uh, anyway, this guy... When you go to a restaurant and you go to the other places, almost everywhere you went, the guy would gently give his testimony. It wasn't forced. It was very natural. And I kept saying to him, so how does he do that? What he did was he asked questions about people and how they were doing because he cared about them. And then when they would recognize his care and, and, and desire in some way to be of assistance to them, they'd open up. And then he'd basically just say, you know, I know somebody that can help you. And he'd take him to Jesus. So it isn't just this servant uh, shepherd view of leadership is not just beneficial within the Christian community. That mindset 
of looking for needs and trying to discern ways of meeting those needs, it's a perfect way to engage people where they open up and they give you the opportunity then to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Okay, I'm going to stop there for a minute because I said I wanted to give you guys a chance to share a shepherding experience or two that came to your life. Somebody had one. I've forgotten who it was. Said they had one they wanted to share. Yes. James, that's it. Can't see in the sun there. Thank you, Rob. They um, they were at Polk Street Bible Chapel in Oak Cliff. And uh, my wife and I, Donna and I, had just uh, got married down at UT. A little bit of burnt orange uh, for you, Joe. Um, anyway, we were married, um, but my degree from UT wasn't doing too well for me, so you can understand that was not making much money, and we were struggling. Donna had a job teaching part-time at a private school, and we had some medical expenses. We were pretty much living day-to-day and struggling financially, but the Lord had sort of opened up what looked like an opportunity for us to go to Dallas. And so we are in a little church down in Austin, and we had a guest speaker. It was John Rogers who had come to speak at our church. And they said, anybody that wants to have John and Lydia over for lunch, just, you know, talk to them. And so Donna, being hospitable, taking whatever little money we had, invited them over for lunch. And I, I remember clearly saying, Donna, we don't even have a, a dining room table. We have a card table. She said, I know, but we have some spaghetti. I don't think we had meat, but we had meat sauce. Okay. So we had John and Lydia over and we're talking and. And they said, well, um, I understand you're coming to Dallas. And we said, yes. Where are you going to stay? He said, well, we don't know yet. And John said, well, I've got an idea for you. Um, my mother just passed away. She lives on South Welland Street in Oak Cliff. And her house needs to be painted. I've always wanted it to be yellow, kind of like, you know, Al's shirt. It didn't turn out that way, by the way, a little bit brighter than that, but because I've always wanted to be yellow instead of white. If you'll paint the house, then you can stay in the house for free. That sounds good to me. So until I found out how hard it was to paint a wood frame house in the middle of the summer in Dallas. Anyway, but it turned out good. We headed to Dallas. It was over Labor Day. I had a U-Haul. We didn't have enough money to even move the piano we had, which was a used piano upright, but it was the only piece of furniture we owned. Of value, We had to leave that with some friends. We had, I think, $11. We had bread. We had peanut butter and maybe four or five apples. That's it. I'm, I'm, that's what a college degree from UT gets you. I know what you're thinking, Joe. <laughs> well, you had that much in a degree. I know you're thinking that. So we, but I couldn't get my deposit on U-Haul back till after the Labor Day weekend and I had a job but I wasn't going to get paid for two weeks I didn't know what we were going to do we pulled into the house and um, started to unload all of our food you know our peanut butter and jelly and so forth went into the kitchen opened up the refrigerator it was full opened up the pantry it was full opened up the freezer it was full we're just, Don and I are just weeping. On the table, there's a little envelope with a little extra money, just in case we needed it. Now, that was 
Well, Titus 3.14, let us learn how to engage in good deeds that meet pressing needs that we would not be unfruitful. That's part of being sensitive at a moment of shepherding. Well, their shepherding us for that period of transition was just a, a wonderful example of shepherding. I haven't forgotten it, and uh, hopefully uh, I'll be able to remind John and Lydia of that when we reunite in heaven. Anybody else? We're coming to a close here. Yes, sir. Thanks. That's really true. Yeah. Lenny? Yeah. Yeah, I think many of us, when you think of the camp, these camps and these kids, how many kids today do not have a father, do not have somebody to put their arm around them and just say, I love you, somebody relate to them? It's huge. I, I literally, I go back to my horror stories from prison, but there were guys in that prison who had watched their father put a gun to their mother's head and kill her. Can you imagine? I mean, the mess you got to work your way out of to do that. I remember Ken Ludy was at one of those. He said to this guy, "Would you do it again?" And the guy said, "No, I think I'd do it differently." And so Ken says to him, "When you get to heaven, what are you going to say to her?" <laughs> I thought that's a good question. But my point is, there are lots and lots of hurting people who do not know what family means. And and that's one of the elements, and we really haven't talked about that, but one of the pieces, I think, is shepherding as a family. Uh, One of the things that we tried to do is, around our dinner table, is we had many, many people there, and, and our kids were a part of that process. They saw the shepherding taking place, kind of up close and personal. That's a beautiful opportunity, and you don't sacrifice your family to do that. You actually bless your family by by having those exposures that I think are really profitable. It is time to quit, so let's close in prayer. Father, we, we thank you that you are the great and the good shepherd. You have sent the Lord Jesus, who became a lamb, to identify with us, to bear our sins, And he now leaves us behind, saying, if we love him, tend to his sheep. Help us to do that. Help us to do it with our children. Help us to do it with our wives, with the young ladies, whoever may be in our lives, people who are desperately in need. Give us eyes to see needs and give us the heart to sacrifice our own advantages to bless others. Be with us as we go, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.